Nell's okay, but you've been rebuked enough today for not uh, greeting with enough enthusiasm, so I'm, I won't add to that. Uh, my name is Stephen, as Mpumi mentioned, and uh, let me add my welcome to you today. Uh, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time, it's, it's really good to have you with us. Um, we hope you feel welcome. Uh, if you haven't been here for a while, or if you are visiting, we're going through a series in the book of Lamentations, as mentioned. And let me just take a moment to just get myself set up here. Uh, I want to just put this over here. Okay. Yeah, so we're going through the book of Lamentations, as has been mentioned. Now, this is one of those lesser-known books in the Bible, and probably for, I don't know if it's good reason, but for understandable reason, it's quite a sad book. It's quite a heavy book. Uh, It's not your classic book that you would go to in your morning quiet time for a quick boost of encouragement to get that one verse that's going to give you the strength for the day because you might just get a really nasty verse. Um, it's not. Last time, if, if, you, if you use the Bible flip uh, method, the controversial Bible flip method for your quiet time, it's amazing. It just never opens to lamentations, right? Um, we'll go elsewhere, but, but it's not the most exciting book in, in some ways. But as we've seen in the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at lamentations, uh, there's been a lot of value in there, a lot that we've learned through it. It hasn't been like the most joyful or light-hearted stuff, but it's been, it's been really valuable. Um, I've often found that, that it's in the most confusing or most difficult passages of Scripture or even most offensive passages of Scripture that when you stop and you dig a little bit deeper, you end up finding that there's a gold mine to be, to be found. And if you just have the patience, just spend a bit of time doing you find it. And that's been my experience these last few weeks and also in prepping for today. Uh, today, fortunately, the good news is that there's actually some hope that I think we're going to see coming through, finally, in this book of Lamentations as we get to chapter 3. Uh, before I jump into today's text in chapter 3, let's just back up a little uh, and just remind ourselves of the context of this book. All right, and to do that, uh, I want to actually go... All the way back, uh, and take, really zoom out and, and look at this in the big picture of, of the Bible and, and the history of the world. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden and were kicked out of God's presence, out of his place and out of his blessing, God has been at work to build and restore for himself a people, a people who would live under his blessing, under his rule, in his place. And we see early on he picks Abraham. He chooses Abraham and he gives him a whole lot of promises. And he does the same for Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, whose other name was Israel. And we see that the promises are to build Israel into a great nation, a nation who uh, would have a place, a promised land that they would live in under God's blessing and rule, that they would become a nation that would bless every other nation in the world. Um, We see that along with these promises to, to the nation of Israel came warnings, Warnings that if they were to reject God, if they were to chase after false gods, uh, that they would uh, again be cast out of God's blessing, out of his place, that there would be punishment, that their enemies would overcome them. And as we get to the book of Lamentations, we see that uh, time has passed. Israel became a a kingdom. Uh, They set up kings like David and Solomon. In time, the kingdom got split and there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and then there was the kingdom of Judah. And Lamentations is written just after the destruction of Jerusalem in Judah uh, at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. When Babylon invaded uh, Jerusalem, many people were brutally murdered. Uh, Others were taken captive to Babylon. Some were left behind, including Jeremiah the prophet, who probably wrote the book of Lamentations. 
Uh, and so it's written to lament, to look back, to mourn and grieve on what has happened in Jerusalem. Uh, we also know from the book of Lamentations, but from elsewhere in the Bible, from two kings and the book of Jeremiah, we know that this happened for a reason. This wasn't just a random disaster that happened to Israel. This was because of their sin, because of specific sins, sins of rejecting God, sins of chasing false gods and idols, sins of social injustice that they were perpetrating. And despite warning after warning after warning from the prophets, they ignored those warnings and eventually, as promised, punishment came upon them. And that's what we've been seeing in the last few uh, weeks. Uh, more context just on the structure of the book. There's a diagram I'd like to show you. Jono showed this diagram. I stole it from him, I have to admit. Um, it was a great diagram. He showed it last week. Uh, and we see the structure of the book of Lamentations. It's it's written in what's sometimes called a chiastic structure or a chiasm, which is a, a form of Hebrew poetry. And the, the characteristic of that form is that the climax happens in the middle, not at the end. It doesn't sort of build up and then at the end it all gets resolved in climax. It's actually happening in the middle, which is chapter 3, and so I'm fortunate to have the, the climax, the exciting bit today. Um, but then the outer section is kind of like an onion. They kind of... Uh, bracket the thing and have, have similar themes. So last week we saw similar themes uh, that Jono preached on God's judgment and God's anger in chapter 2 and 4. Uh, chapter 1 and 5 look at, sort of at Israel, at their dis- de- desolation and then their response, those who are left behind. Uh, and then today we're going to see Jeremiah's response. So Jeremiah now the author writing in the first person uh, as, as the suffering prophet uh, and we'll see that there's going to be hope, that this book will climax. And actually in the middle of the third chapter is where the hope is packed in. And we're going to see that come through. And so the title for today's sermon is Hope in Suffering. Hope in Suffering. So let's turn there. Please turn with me to chapter 3. It's quite a long text and we are going to read it all. And we're going to get into the mood of it as we read it. Uh, so turn with it in your Bible or on your phone. It, it should be up behind me as well. As we read it now, we'll see that this third poem in, in the book of Lamentations is written in the first person. It's written now as Jeremiah himself, writing as a man, as one who is suffering himself in this, in this exile. And we'll see that, that even though he was the one bringing God's word to the people and he was ignored and rejected and ridiculed by his own people, uh, nevertheless he was suffering along with his people uh, because of their sin. All right, so let's read from chapter 3, from verse 1 all the way to verse 66. All right, so let's read together. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And by the way, this is God's wrath. There's going to be a lot of he's coming up now, and it's God that that the author is speaking about. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. 
Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. 
You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this further. Father God, we want to come before you this morning. We acknowledge that you are here with us and we acknowledge that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that all of your word is useful for us, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to us through it today, Lord, that you would meet with each one of us. Lord, that you would open our hearts to what it is that you have to say, that you would open our hearts to you, Father, that we would engage with you today. Father, I pray that we would not be changed, but that as your word speaks to us, Lord, that it would change us. Father, we would change our thinking, we would change our attitudes, we would change our behavior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, let's jump into this text. So, as mentioned, we're seeing Jeremiah writing in the first person here, describing his own suffering. And in verse 1, he puts it this way. He says, I am the man who has seen the affliction under the rod of God's wrath. Now, you might be familiar, you might have heard of God's rod somewhere else in Scripture. You may well know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Later on, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There we see the idea of God's rod being compared to a shepherd's rod, which is used to protect his sheep from predators. But here we see God's rod is turning against his own people. It is a fearful thought. It's a scary turnaround in terms of how God is using his rod. And we've seen and discussed in the last two weeks this uncomfortable idea that that actually God is somehow actively involved in, in the suffering that has happened to Israel. He's not just allowing it to happen. He's actually... He is actually causing it. It was actually his plan and his will. And that, that is something that is quite difficult for us to deal with. It raises questions immediately for us about suffering we see all around us, our own suffering. Um, what is God's role in our suffering? Is he maybe behind it? Does he allow it? Does he cause it? How can a loving God not only allow suffering, but maybe even inflict suffering? Not an easy question. Maybe there's this question, because we know this is because of their sin. The question is, well, is it maybe because of my sin that I'm suffering in the way I'm suffering currently? Or did this happen because of my sin? Now, Lamentations is not sort of trying to answer those questions. It's not, it's not sort of trying to help us debate and, and understand the theology of exactly how, how God does things and what, what is behind suffering. But it's kind of taken as self-evident. In this case... It's just self-evident, it's a given, that what's happened to them is God's punishment, it's his judgment because of their sin. And as the readers, we've seen behind the scenes. We, we know the whole story. We've seen their sin. The narration tells us that it's because of their sin. So we know the whole picture. We know why God is doing this. It's been revealed to us. And we know that it is because of their sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see people suffering, and we also know that it's not because of their sin. So the book of Job is a great example where almost precisely the opposite, where this is a righteous man, and God, almost because he's righteous, wants to demonstrate and show off that, that this man will not turn away from God, even if he's suffering in the most intense way. So there again is a case where Job is suffering, and we've seen behind the scenes. We know why it's happening to him, all right? And that case is not because he sinned. 
All right? But most of the time in life, we're not going to see behind the scenes. We don't always know. Uh, we don't have a Bible book written about our suffering, and so we can't see the conversations God is having behind the scene. We don't know why it's happening, and we need to be careful not to sort of connect all the dots too eagerly, I think. Um, I think Jesus taught us this. Uh, there was a, a discussion that he was having with some people after a tower had fallen and killed a bunch of guys. And the question was, uh, were these people worse sinners? And that's why this tower fell on them and killed them. And Jesus' answer is, no, they weren't worse sinners. It's not because they sinned that the tower fell on them. But then he turns it around from the focus being on them and whether they were worse sinners, and he turns it on his audience and he says, but you... Unless you repent, you all will perish as well. So he tells them, I think it means, don't overinterpret the suffering. If there's a disaster, don't worry about whether they sinned and they, that's why they happened. If it's in your life, don't think it's necessarily because of my sin. But in all these things, when disaster is happening, take it as a gracious opportunity to repent. There's still time to repent in order to avoid perishing. And when Jesus is talking about perishing here, I think... It's warning us about that ultimate perishing, that ultimate death and suffering, which the Bible talks about uh, as hell. We don't like to talk about hell in our culture. It, it, it feels repugnant, or maybe even backwards. Uh, but the Bible talks about it, and I think it's relevant for us today as we look at Lamentations 3. Because for me, Lamentations 3, the verses we've read, especially the first third or so of this chapter, I can't help but think of of it as describing hell. Uh, when you meditate on these verses, I mean, li listen to me, hell is precisely where, and I'm going to quote from passages here that we've read, hell is exactly where souls are besieged, where they are dwelling in darkness, where there is no escape, where prayers cannot be heard, where people are desolate and filled with bitterness, where there are teeth grinding on gravel, where there is no hope, and where happiness cannot even be remembered. That's a scary thought. Happiness couldn't even be remembered. And I think it's fair for us as we, as we meditate, as we lament, as we meditate on these words, to think of hell, to stop and consider the reality of the danger of hell. Not just an, 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 an eternity without God, but actually an eternity suffering under God's wrath. It is a very scary idea. But as we lament and as we meditate further, I think even at this very darkest point in our lament, hope starts to come through. Hope comes through because as we lament further, I think these images conjure up not only the idea of hell, but they conjure up and allude to the images of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The language of Lamentations 3 draws on the language of of other passages in scripture which talk about the sufferings of Christ. It, it draws in the language of Isaiah 53, which talks also about God's suffering servant. It says how it was the Lord's will for him to suffer. Again, God behind it, it was the Lord's will for him to suffer. It says that, it was, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that by his wounds we were healed. The language draws also on the language of Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, both psalms which are very clearly prophetic about the cross. And so I think as we, as we meditate on this, um, we start to see 
that God himself has suffered through, through Christ with us. He's with us in our suffering. The, the fact that this is written in the first person, already there's a sense of comfort because already Israel's prophet is kind of identifying with them in their suffering. There's a sense of identification in their suffering, whereas before they were just completely on their own in a sense. But if we see the parallels between Jeremiah and, and Jesus, then I think uh, there's even more comfort because God's presence with Israel It's now no longer that God is just there, the one dishing out the punishment, but God is now the one who has also shared with us. He became flesh. He he shared in our sufferings. He can sympathize with us. Uh, There are real parallels between Jesus and, and Jeremiah here. Jesus, as we said, took on flesh and experienced the human experience. He experienced agony. And when he saw it and when he experienced it, he lamented. I think there's a number of scriptures which talk about Jesus lamenting. Uh, maybe the, w- the word lament isn't used, but we see him lamenting. Uh, and I just think of one, uh, think of one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Who, who knows what it is? Jesus wept, right? Is it the shortest? Maybe it is. Maybe uh, In Greek as well? Maybe? Okay. Maybe there's a long word for crying or something. But, um, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, we see Jesus weeping there. Now, what happened when Jesus wept? That verse happened when uh, Jesus was at uh, the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus who had just died. He died a few days earlier, in fact, and the house was mourning, and Jesus arrived, and he saw the suffering. Now, we know that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus knew this already. So, so Jesus knew what was going to happen. So Jesus couldn't have been weeping just because he was sad to have lost a brother, all right? He wasn't, in that sense, mourning the death of Lazarus. It's kind of confusing to me. I've wondered about that. And I think it was because Jesus was weeping and lamenting and staring at the suffering as a whole. It was more of an existential weeping that he saw how much it hurt the people. He saw the consequences of death and the suffering in the world. And it upset him deeply. I listened once to a, uh, to a sermon which was quite influential for me. And, uh, and the preacher was saying, speaking about that Jesus weeping, that it, it wasn't just crying, that the Greek behind that was around, there was anger, there was, he was almost furious about this. It was, it was a re, almost like a furious grieving at what had happened. And I think in that moment, Jesus was expressing and sympathizing and empathizing with the suffering in the world caused by sin, death and loss and all the pain that is going on. And I think it upset him enough that he went beyond weeping. He goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. We know that he did what was necessary to overcome sin and death. He took it on. He didn't just grieve it. He went and did what was necessary. He took God's judgment upon himself. At the cross, Jesus uh, became the man suffering under God's rod. At the cross, God turned his hand against Jesus to use the language of lamentations. There, God shut out Jesus' prayer when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, Jesus was torn and pierced and became the object of people's mocking. All things we see happen in Lamentations 3. And so as we lament and as we meditate on this chapter, I think it is also fair to think of the sufferings of Christ and to think on that for a while. Whereas Jeremiah suffered along with his people because of their sin, Jesus suffered in place of his people because of their sin. Let me just say that again. Whereas Jeremiah suffered 
along with his people because of their sin. Jesus suffered in place of his people because of their sin. He suffered so that we do not have to suffer the ultimate agony of hell. And so today we see there is hope in suffering, hope in the suffering of Jesus. And I want to ask you all to please hear the words that we know in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. Please make sure today that you've taken the step of believing in Jesus, that you've put your hope in his suffering, not in anything else that you may think you can do to be acceptable to God, but your hope to be acceptable to God must be in the suffering of Jesus Christ. All right, so we've looked pretty much at the first third of the chapter so far, uh, and we're going to move in the next third to look at hope that we see in the character of God. I'd like to just put up a, a diagram or, or just the outline for today. So it's a bit of a spoiler in terms of where we're going, and that's fine, uh, but I, I don't want us to get lost. So what we've seen, we're looking at hope and suffering. We've seen that there's hope, firstly, in the suffering of Jesus Christ. In the next kind of middle third of the chapter, we're going to look at hope in the character of God. All right, so let's look, let's look at it there. We see in, we're going to look from verse 21 where we, where we see these great ver- verses that we sang about of great is thy faithfulness. All right, but just the verses before that, um, verse 20, we see that the, the poet's soul is still bowed down. He's still feeling hopeless. But then in verse 21, a major shift in the mood happens. It's a huge mood change. It's almost like that feeling of uh, the sun starting to rise after a long and dark night. And you can just hear the birds beginning to sing. Right, there's hope there. Maybe it's like that feeling of waking up from a nightmare and you have that moment of panic and then that moment of relief where you realize it's actually not real. It was just a dream. All right, in this case, there's still time to repent. God is still loving and merciful. So let's read quickly verse 21 to 23 again. I think it's up behind me. But this I call to mind, after just being hopeless, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So Jeremiah here reminds himself of the hope, the hope that is grounded in who God is. It's in his character. Jeremiah may have remembered all the times that God uh, showed his, himself to Israel, all the times he came through for Israel, all the, way, all the words through which he revealed himself to Israel. Maybe he remembered how God revealed himself to Moses. In Exodus 34, we see God pass before Moses with the words that I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So we know that Jeremiah would have known God's character, that he punishes sin, he's a God of justice, but he's also simultaneously somehow a God of mercy and love, a God who forgives. He knows that and he calls it to mind. Perhaps he reasons that, uh, that just as God has been faithful to Israel in in his warnings about sin, and actually that he delivered on that with punishment, that maybe God will also be faithful to show mercy and love because that is what he had promised to Israel so many times. And what's interesting now is that we see that because Jeremiah remembers who God is, because he knows God is a merciful and loving God, 
there are some things that Jeremiah starts to do in response. And for me, there's a lot of comfort in just being able to do something that no longer is it just mourning and grieving with no sense of anything to be done about it other than to just suffer and endure the punishment that is upon you. There's actually something to be done. Now, admittedly, we've learned a lot from this, that we often rush past the lamenting and we want to quickly problem solve. Uh, we, want, we want to get there too fast and we don't sit in the pain enough. And that's been one of the lessons we've learned. Um, as guys in a relationship, as, as men in, in a relationship or marriage, we're often accused of, um, or maybe we're actually, we're probably often guilty of, uh, of not listening. We, we don't understand how people feel. We, we want to rush to the problem solving. We want to we get solutions quickly without stopping and understanding, right? I'm sure many of you have had that fight. Um, all right, and it's the same it's the same here. I think we've learned in, in, through Lamentations that we mustn't rush to problem solving. Um, but at the same time, there is something great, some comfort in, in knowing that there's something we can do about this. There's some, there's some responses that we can actually have um, thanks to God's mercy. So what do we see Jeremiah doing and what can we do? The first thing I think we see him doing in this text is that he deliberately calls to mind God's faithfulness. He deliberately calls to mind God's faithfulness. It's interesting that just before he starts to call to mind God's faithfulness, he's feeling hopeless. The previous verse is saying, my soul is bowed down. My hope had perished from the Lord. All right, so why is it that immediately after saying there's no hope, now he has hope? Is it a contradiction? Well, I think one way to resolve it is to think of the first expression of hopelessness as more an emotional expression of of honesty around where he's at. And we've seen... Anna spoke about the five movements of lament uh, two weeks ago, and the first of those movements was to respond with emotional honesty. Uh, so that is an important thing to do, but here we see Jeremiah going further than that. We see him uh, making a deliberate decision in faith to believe in who God is. And while it's important to go through the lamenting process of being emotionally honest with God, and we can do that, we absolutely have to go a step further if we're going to survive as Christians, we have to actually also uh, force ourselves to believe in who God is. We have to have hope. We have to remind ourselves of God's promises, of his word, of his character. Uh, some people talk about this as preaching to yourself. You might have heard that. We have to preach to ourselves. And we see this a lot in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. I listen to Psalm 103, where the psalmist preaches to himself. He says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my, all my inmost being... Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He's preaching to himself, addressing himself directly. And this is something we need to learn to do. I'm not talking here about just positive self-talk. This is not, this is not uh, the power of positive thinking that you'll read about in self-help books. I'm talking here about believing God's truths. I'm talking about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and fighting. We have to do this if we're going to survive in our faith. Otherwise, we will stay in a position of self-pity and sulking, and we may even drift further from God. It's not easy. Guys, I know it's not easy to do this. When we're feeling hopeless, when we're feeling down, when we're feeling tempted, when we... 
in those situations, it's really hard. And, and I'll admit, I, I, most of the time, I don't get it right. Most of the time, I just don't have the energy to open the word or to start to preach to myself. So, so I know this, but I really feel it's something we need to learn to do. And it's modeled for us by Jeremiah in, in a really hopeless place. And the good news is also we have the Holy Spirit in us. He helps us. He helps us to do it. Um, sometimes, as, as Romans tells us, with, with moans and groans and expressions that aren't even words. So even before we've got the words, the Holy Spirit is there to help us. So as we start, he will help us. Um, but we have to do it. We have to uh, go beyond the hopeless feeling to choosing to have hope. We could put it this way, that even when we feel hopeless, we can choose to have hope. Even when we feel hopeless, we can choose to have hope. Again, it's because of who God is. And I think it's part of the process of lamenting. We, we move through emotional honesty, through to uh, revealing the lies that we may have been believing, through to believing truth, and ultimately through to having hope. That, I think, is part of the process of lamenting. So we deliberately call to mind God's faithfulness and his character. And the second thing I think we see Jeremiah speaking about, and the second thing we can do because of who God is in our suffering, uh, is we can embrace and endure God's discipline. We can actually embrace and endure God's discipline because we know who he is. Uh, Look at uh, verses 24 to 30 with me. I'm not going to read them all, but just to highlight a few things from these verses, speaking about the position of discipline, we see in verse 27, it quite simply says that it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Discipline is good for us. In times of discipline, we're often stripped of our idols. The things which we put our hope in, the things which we find identity in, they're taken away from us and it really hurts. And the lesson that we need to learn in those times is that God is enough, that he's all we need. And may we embrace that. When those times happen, may we learn that lesson. But we not, may we not be stubborn about it, but may we learn the lesson and may we say along with Jeremiah here, that the Lord is my portion. May our souls respond like that. He is enough for us. But we also see in these verses an interesting position that, that we are actually to adopt and kind of embrace actively the discipline that's going on. Four times here it uses the words, let him, and I've highlighted them there. Let him sit alone in silence. Just let him put his mouth in the dust. There's a sense in which it's good and we should kind of actively almost embrace it. Uh, this is not something which we naturally want to do. We, uh, we want our prayers answered immediately. When we're going through a rough time, we want God to answer that prayer immediately. But maybe it's good to sit alone in silence for a while before God just delivers you from the issues. Uh, we want to fight back when we're being unfairly treated, but maybe it's actually good to offer your cheek to the one who strikes or to be filled with insults. And the reason why we can embrace and endure the discipline is because, again, as I've said, it's who God is. The verses immediately following this, 31 to 33, tell us that God will not cast us off forever. They tell us that although he may allow pain and suffering, yet he has compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 33 tells us that God has no joy in our pain. It says he does not afflict from his heart. We know we can trust him. His character is good to us. And therefore, when he disciplines us, it's for our good, and we can actually embrace that and endure it and make sure that we learn the lessons God is teaching us. Okay, a third thing we can do 
because of who God is. Third thing that Jeremiah calls us to do is to return to the Lord in confession and repentance. Return to the Lord in confession and repentance. Look at verses 40 to 42. It says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven and pray. Okay, so a hugely important part of Christian lamenting is actually engaging with God. Okay, it's not just mourning, it's not just grieving, it's not just feeling sad about what's happened. We actually move towards engaging God. It's done in God's presence. And the way we engage, one of the chief ways in which we engage is through prayer. We see it here, lifting up our hearts and hands to God. I think that's a picture of prayer. We don't do this naturally. We often want to isolate ourselves when, when things get tough, especially if we've sinned. Um, and uh, that's our natural inclination to hide away, to go inward. I've seen this in the context of team sports, uh, through playing and through watching. When, as a team, things go wrong, you start to lose, the plan unravels, uh, everyone, it, it quickly becomes 11 individuals out there on the field. Um, everyone turning inward, everyone starting to blame each other, wishing they were somewhere else. Um, and what you need in that situation is a leader to stand up and to start talking, to get some, some talk going again to restore belief in the team and what we're doing. Um, and, and that's not an easy thing to do. But it's the same in our relationship with God. I think we naturally want to, uh, we want to hide away. We isolate ourselves from each other often, from community. We isolate ourselves from God. And I say, especially when we've sinned, we feel unacceptable to God. We feel like some time must maybe first pass before we can kind of really come to Him again in prayer. Um, but we can and remember, it's because of who he is, because he's a loving God, he's faithful, he's merciful. We can return to him and we must. Okay, so we've seen three things in, in the middle section as we wrap it up. Let's have a look at, the, at the, where we are again. So we, we've, looked, we've been looking at hope in the character of God in this middle section of, of chapter 3. And, and because of God's character, because he's loving and merciful, we can, we can do some things. And we can firstly call to mind God's faithfulness. We can embrace and endure the discipline, and we can return to the Lord in confession and repentance. Now, as we move towards the third uh, and final section of, of the chapter, we're going to see that there's hope because God is present to save and bring justice. This last section will show us God is present to save and to bring justice. Let's look quickly at verses 46 to 53 as we make our way through this long chapter. All right, we see a few interesting shifts. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in this last third, there's some, some changes in the way things are portrayed from earlier in the book. Whereas earlier we saw God was the one inflicting the punishment. It was him that did this. He is like a bear lying in wait for us. Uh, he shut out my prayer, etc. And now we see that it's, God, it's the people's enemies doing it. It's a slight shift of emphasis. It's the enemies. They open their mouths against us. Uh, at, at the bottom, I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit. Now, of course, it was always the enemies and it was always God, but there's a shift in the way God is portrayed that starts to bring hope because God, God's role is different. Instead of being the one punishing, God is now one who sees. Verse 50, he looks down and sees. Um, God sees their, their suffering. And in the Bible, when it talks about God seeing suffering, it's more than just God sees the suffering. It always means that God cares. He sympathizes with them. And you know that when God sees suffering, it means he's about to do something about it. 
Okay, that's a, something that always happens in Scripture. So God is now changing from, from one who was just inflicting the punishment to one who sees the suffering and who cares about it and who will do something about it. In verses 55 to 58, the next couple of verses, uh, here we see another shift. Earlier in, in this chapter, we've seen how prayers were not answered. We saw God shutting out Jeremiah's prayer. But here we see that God heard his plea. He came near when I called on me, and he's taken up his cause and redeemed his life. So it's a shift. We're starting to see God now hearing the prayer. And in the last verses of the chapter, verses 60 to 66, we see perhaps an even more radical reversal in God's portrayed role in their suffering. Uh, Here we see God basically as the one who will punish their their enemies for what they've done. By the way, when, just because the Babylonians were used by God, because he chose to use them to punish Israel, that doesn't mean that they're not guilty of all the atrocities that they committed. Okay? And, and that's the point God makes in the last verses, uh, that they will be punished. And we know historically that God was faithful to that. He did destroy Babylon uh, later on. And so we see here as God now no longer the one punishing but he's portrayed as one who sees, who cares, and who's going to restore justice, who's going to punish those who committed the atrocities. What does this mean for us today? Today we live not quite when they live. We live after Jesus, um, but we live before Jesus has come back to restore perfection, to restore a world where there's no more suffering and pain. We live in a time where we know the victory is certain because of what Jesus has done for us, but the reality now is that there's going to be pain, there's going to be sin all around us, the world is a broken and fallen place, uh, there's a lot of injustice that's going on. Tepo spoke about it earlier today, um, did a great job meditating on some of these verses, and we, of course, should not be, be content with all the injustice. We should be upset by it. We should work for change here and now. Uh, like modern Luther King, we should not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. Okay, we shouldn't be happy with it. It shouldn't leave us okay. We should work for justice. But at the same time, there is comfort in knowing that God ultimately is going to bring justice. All right, we can rest in the truth that he is going to punish people, as the scripture here says, according to their work of their hands. As verse 66 says, God will pursue them in anger and destroy them. This should be a comfort to us. To be honest, it's not something that I spend enough time thinking about and being comforted by. I don't look forward enough to Christ's return, to a day when injustice will be dealt with. But it's quite quite a remarkable thought that there actually is coming a day there certainly is coming a day when there will be no injustice somehow left unresolved. No individual act of injustice is going to be undealt with or somehow not quite resolved. Similarly, no systemic injustice is going to be left unresolved or brushed under the carpet, somehow not quite fully dealt with. That won't happen. The day will come when all injustice will be dealt with. It's quite something to believe. But I don't know about you, but there's only so much time I can sort of spend being comforted by that before I realize how much I need God's mercy on that day. Right? Because I'm one who has committed injustice. I'm one who's benefited from injustice. And so I'm going to need God's mercy. I really am going to need to hide in Jesus 
on that day. And so that brings me to sort of the major application for today's text. And that is, please, let us make sure we escape the coming judgment of God. There's enough warning in this text about what it will look like. Let us escape that judgment by hiding in Jesus Christ, by putting our hope in his suffering. Jesus took the full might of God's wrath on the cross. He descended into hell on our behalf. He defeated sin and death, and he fully satisfied God's anger. So let us put our trust in that. Let us accept this incredible gift that God offers to us through Jesus. It starts with prayer. It starts with engaging God, coming to him, returning to him in prayer, and confession and repentance, accepting him, expressing trust in him. If you haven't ever done this before, I'd encourage you today to turn to the Lord, to put your trust in him. As I say, it starts with pray, but, but if you're not sure what to pray or how to pray, please stay behind afterwards. As mentioned, there will be some of us up front. Uh, please come and pray with us. We'd love to do that. Or perhaps pray with someone else that you know and trust. Um, please mark today uh, by praying to God, praying with someone as you return to him. But please let no one leave today without knowing for sure that you're right with God. And for those of us who have already crossed the line of faith, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, the great news is that we are God's children. There is no longer any punishment waiting for us. It has all been paid for by Jesus. And we should praise God. We should want to just praise God. We should never get tired of hearing that truth. We should never get tired of that relief of realizing it's all been paid for. Uh, we can look forward to an eternity with him. We should sing these songs we sing. We should sing them with emotion and with feel. In the meantime, there's going to be pain and suffering before we get there. This life is going to throw a lot at us. Many of you right now are struggling with various things, losses, sickness, suffering, uh, discipline. Maybe it's discipline. Maybe it's just the messed up things that happen in this world and you're not sure why it's happening. But be encouraged today that God is good, that he's merciful and loving, that he won't allow it to go on forever. Be encouraged that if there's discipline, as, as the book of Hebrews tells us, God disciplines those he loves. It's because he loves us and because we're legitimate children of his that he disciplines us. Hebrews tells us it's not going to be pleasant at the time, but in time it will reap a harvest of righteousness. It will be for our good. It may be the thing that helps us keep our faith. It may be the thing that helps us not turn away from God, that keeps us depending on Him. Um, maybe you know how uh, the, the cure for smallpox happened. Uh, smallpox, I don't know if any of us even know it anymore, but it used to be a killer disease. It, it wiped out a lot of people, I think a couple of hundred years ago, and there was no cure for it. Until people realized that uh, the guys with cowpox, which is a, these are, it's similar, chickenpox, which we know about, chickenpox, cowpox, smallpox, and I know that there's doctors in the room, so I'm in a dangerous space right now. But my understanding of the story is that they realized, someone realized that uh, the guys who'd had cowpox, which is also a serious disease, but it didn't kill, they seemed to not get smallpox. And uh, through that, they did, they did the research and they realized 
that actually cowpox seems to kind of uh, make you immune from getting smallpox. And so they developed an, a vaccination through that uh, discovery. And maybe it's interesting to think that the suffering, the difficulty of having gone through smallpox, those who suffered under smallpox somehow were saved from a much worse uh, disease, a killer disease of smallpox. And so maybe discipline is actually the thing that's going to help us uh, avoid the thing that's much worse. Maybe it's the thing that will help us survive in our faith, that will keep us depending on God. And as this happens to us, let's trust him. He's good, he's merciful, he's loving. If you're going through those kinds of times at the moment, let's also respond in prayer. I feel it would be good for all of us to, to take a moment today to pray to just respond to God where we're at, just expressing where we're at, uh, putting our hope in Him, starting to choose to believe in who He is. Friends, there is great hope in suffering. We've seen that there is hope because our only hope lies in suffering, the suffering of Jesus Christ. We've seen that there is hope because God is faithful and merciful and He won't allow us to suffer forever. We've seen that there's hope because God disciplines us and makes us better through suffering. And lastly, there's hope because Christ will return and bring justice and restoration. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before you, as we engage you this morning, Lord, we want to be honest with you. Help us to be honest with you. Help us to open ourselves, open our hearts and minds to you. Holy Spirit, would you stir faith in us? Would you help us to believe that you even exist? Help us to believe that you're good. Help us to perceive it this morning, Lord, to believe it in a way that goes beyond the idea of it, Lord. But Lord, even if it is at the moment just an idea that we're struggling to feel, would you help us to call it to mind, to start the process, Lord, to start to preach to ourselves, to start to remind ourselves of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would be continuing now to work in each person's heart, that you'd help us to come to you, Lord Jesus, this morning. Put our faith and trust in you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Thank you that we can look forward to an eternity with you that starts today, that we can know you intimately and personally. Thank you, Lord, that even though we don't deserve it, Lord, you've made us your children. You've lavished your love upon us. We enjoy an immensely privileged position before you of favor. I really pray, Father, that as, as we saw the mood shift in lamentations from, from darkness and despair to hope, that this morning, Lord, you'd fill us with hope even if we're in a difficult place, Lord, that you'd fill us with hope, that it would start to be something we'd even feel this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.